Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the new podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. The European Union has reached an important milestone on the way to comprehensive cryptocurrency regulation. This week, I'm joined by my colleague, Caroline Malcolm, who leads our public policy team. She's going to help all of us understand what's been agreed to and what's ahead. Micah, the markets and crypto assets regulations are still in the process of being finalized, but these look to be the most comprehensive cryptocurrency regulations of any jurisdiction globally and could set the pattern other countries will follow. We discuss the impact on personal wallets, stable coins, and licensing complexities for crypto businesses. For even more detail on this topic, we've published a two-part blog series and the links can of course be found in the show notes. I'm joined by my colleague, Caroline Malcolm, who's head of policy for Chainalysis. Caroline, big news coming out of the EU over the last couple of weeks. Hope you can explain it to me. I'm very confused. Yeah, very happy to be and very glad to be here. There is definitely some big news out of the EU and look forward to talking you through some of the details. You're my go-to inside of Chainalysis when regulators are doing things that make little to no sense to me. But in this case, as far as I can tell, we actually have a bunch of really smart folks generally trying to do things that I think long run benefit crypto consumers and the crypto ecosystem. Maybe we can start at the top. It appears the EU has reached an agreement on some crypto regulation, but there's maybe some work to be done. Can you maybe orient us where we are in the legislative process that happens in the EU? Absolutely. So there's two key pieces of legislation that the EU has been thinking about uh, really for the last uh, three or four years. One of those is the Markets and Crypto Asset Regulation, which amongst other things is a regulatory framework for licensing of crypto assets and crypto asset service providers all across the EU. And secondly, and this will be much more familiar to everyone across the globe, is uh, something called the Transfer of Funds Regulation, commonly known as the implementation of the Travel Rule, which is part of the Financial Action Task Force International Standard for Virtual Assets that it set in 2019. In terms of where we are today with the EU, we have seen the conclusion of the political agreement, which is a very uh, high-level agreement on some of the key elements of these two pieces of the package. However, there are some important details that still need to be worked out. So we don't have the final legislative text yet. We can expect to see that over the coming four to eight months. There's no set timeline for that as yet. But in the meantime, we do have some of the details that have already been released. And it is very exciting for the crypto world. This is the response to their demands for clarity for some sort of passporting arrangement so that they can operate across the EU, regardless of which member state they're operating in. And so it really is a step forward for, in fact, the whole world when it comes to you know creating sustainable future for this industry. And my sense is actually the EU is quite a bit ahead of other jurisdictions on this, which is, I think, gives them a bit of a driver's seat position where as this rolls into effect over the the coming months and years, it will become the de facto standard that ultimately probably gets adopted in other major jurisdictions. Is that a reasonable way to think about it? Like if they're if they're setting the bar, everybody else is going to end up aligning to what the EU's decided on? Yeah, I think that is a fair assessment, Ian. They certainly set a benchmark for how to interpret some of the international standards in this space and actually implement them at the national or supranational level. And so I think like other countries all around the world will be looking at what the EU has done and to determine whether that's the right approach for them. 
That's exciting. Even though we don't yet have the final text, so we'll caveat the whole conversation that, hey, there may be minor, in some cases, maybe more significant changes that evolve over the next four to six months as this gets finalized. Let's talk about what we do know now. You mentioned two parts, the markets and crypto assets, or MICA, as a lot of people have been referring to it, and the transfer of funds, TFR. Let's start with transfer of funds. We actually had Pele Brandgard, the CEO of Notabene, on an earlier episode of the podcast a couple months back talking about travel rules. So if anybody's not sort of generally familiar with the idea of travel rule or where it came from, that's a great episode to go check out. We'll link to it in the show notes. What's going on here? Is this basically the EU taking the FATF recommendation on this idea of travel rule and just sort of stamping it into official EU doctrine? Or or did they actually take it a bit further even than the FATF regulation? So the EU has definitely uh, used the Financial Action Task Force recommendation as a starting point, but we will see that in a couple of important regards, they've gone beyond what the standard actually requires, and we can dig into those in a little bit of detail. But fundamentally, what the travel rule is trying to do is to ensure that cryptocurrency businesses, or what the EU calls crypto asset service providers, that they must identify the originators and the beneficiaries of transactions above a certain monetary value. And this is really the standard that the FATF has set. And there's really two important questions when we think about the travel rule. The first that comes to this question of when will the travel rule apply? So what is the value threshold above which um, transactions must be subject to the travel rule, that identification of the of the beneficiary and the originator of the transaction. And secondly is this question of how they deal with personal wallets or, or what some people call unhosted wallets. Let's let's take the first one first. So what's the threshold that the EU's decided on here? Well, I think, you know, as context, what we should remember is that the Financial Action Task Force said that the travel rule should apply for transactions which are a thousand US dollars or a thousand euros and above. And we know, for example, in the United States, they have a threshold of 3,000 US dollars. The EU's new rules, though, will apply a zero euro threshold. So that means that any transactions crypto asset service providers need to identify the originator and the beneficiary of those transactions. So this really is a significant step beyond what the international standard has actually set. I know that the euro has been on a decline recently compared to the US dollar, but I'm pretty sure zero is still zero. (laughs) (laughs) That's right, Ian. So setting a threshold of zero dollars basically says every single transaction you must have origin and beneficiary details on if you're a licensed crypto asset service provider in the EU. That's right. Now, this is, in fact, the approach that we already saw some individual EU member states take. So for France, for example, already has in its own national level rules that zero euro threshold in place. But as I said, it goes beyond what other EU member states have currently, and it goes far beyond what the standard actually requires. And because the EU is so significant, not just as an economic market generally, we're talking about 500 million people in the EU, but also for the crypto economy, what goes on in EU accounts for a very significant proportion of of transactions in the cryptocurrency space. So when you start to think in practical terms about how this travel rule is actually going to apply, it's going to mean that if you're outside of the EU and transacting into the EU, 
you or vice versa, then this new threshold is actually going to apply in those cases too. So in fact, it's going to have, to a degree, an extraterritorial impact on the crypto industry. In simple terms, anyone who's sending funds into the EU market or receiving funds from someone in the EU market is now subject to this zero euro threshold. That's right. And that's actually one of the practical challenges when we think about implementation of the travel. Each time a jurisdiction or country decides to make a small amendment to the standard in this way, adjust the actual implementation of the standard, it means that crypto asset service providers like exchanges need to adjust for each one of those different nuances. And that just makes implementation more difficult at the practical level. It sounds like there's going to be a fair amount of work here. Obviously, some some of the companies who are already operating in jurisdictions where this has been the standard, they're in good shape. But for everyone else, time to get to work. The other part you mentioned here related to personal wallets. What was the decision there? Because I know there's been a lot of discussion about are personal wallets a significant source of illicit activity? Are they being meaningfully used in you know terrorist financing or other forms of, of money laundering? Where did the EU come down on personal wallets? Yeah, look, this is one of those areas around cryptocurrency where I say there's a fair amount of of myths and misconceptions. One of the fantastic things about crypto is because of its underlying transparency, we can actually have quite a lot of data about what's actually going on in the ecosystem. So we can have a good idea, for example, what's the average value of transactions to terrorist financing organizations. We have an idea, on the other hand, you know, what's the average of transactions to initiatives like like supporting uh, different parts of the Ukraine government uh, in, in response to Russia's invasion. So despite having this information, though, what we've seen uh, here is an approach to this question of personal wallets, or as I said before, what some people call unhosted wallets, which seems to be based on an assumption that there is a greater level of risk involved with those wallets. And we know from the data that that's not necessarily the case. So what the EU has required, and and this in some ways is in fact not as strict as some of the uh, proposals that were made during the discussions on this legislation, but there's really two aspects. The first one, if you are a client of a cryptocurrency exchange and you're transacting with your own personal wallet, In that case, if the transaction is less than a thousand euros, then the travel rule won't apply. If on the other hand, the transfer uh, is above a thousand euros, then the cryptocurrency exchange must ask the user if they are the owner of the wallet. And if yes, then the user has to verify the ownership of the wallet. Now they only need to do this once, and that's once per crypto exchange, for example. So they don't need to do it on every future transfer, but it means that they will have to show in some way that they're actually the owner of that wallet they're transferring to. Now the second case, of course, is if you're transferring out of an exchange to a wallet which is not your own wallet. So it's a personal wallet, it's an unhosted wallet, but it's not yours. And in that case, cryptocurrency business will actually need to collect information on the owner of that personal wallet. And they need to apply a risk-based approach to doing that. And that can be through different ways, including the use of blockchain analytics. So for example, to ensure that the wallet that's receiving the funds doesn't have exposure to uh, terrorist financing organizations, darknet, ransomware, and so forth. 
Now, on that second part, a lot of our customers at Chainalysis are already doing this, right? They use our KYT product, and on any user withdrawal request, they're kind of pre-validating the destination of that withdrawal request, and that oftentimes they're using that to protect users who maybe have fallen uh, victim or in the process of falling victim to a scam or some sort of fraud activity, and basically preventing that withdrawal to something that that looks suspicious. But this seems to extend that uh, further to say, like, there's a requirement here of collection of information that I don't think most exchanges gather today, which is is to say I need to know basically beneficial ownership details of any wallet that isn't at another known counterparty, basically another licensed crypto asset service provider. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's right, Ian. And I think that's what makes uh, this move obviously a big change in terms of sort of the operating processes that, that exchanges, brokers, custodians are actually going to have to apply. And although we're still waiting to see a lot of the details, like what exact information exactly will need to be collected, are we just going to be looking at direct exposures of that wallet or also indirect exposures? But those are the sorts of details we're going to be waiting to see over the coming six months. You know, the thing that strikes me about this personal wallet regulation, it must be setting off the privacy advocates in the EU, right? I, I think about you know, GDPR and sort of the protection that is afforded over all sorts of electronic information uh, for EU residents. This is sort of going the other direction, which is instructing exchanges to collect information about every personal wallet that interacts with the exchange in some capacity and presumably maintain that information for a long time. If I contrast that with a cash transaction, none of this data is collected. So this actually seems like a large step towards information collection reconnaissance, quite a bit different in philosophy than the stance EU's taken around regulation like GDPR. How's that discussion going? Yeah, look, it is a it is a, a challenging tension, and the EU has made clear that they expect this requirement to be complied with in a way that is GDPR compliant. So, in a sense, they're saying to virtual asset service providers, you need to comply with both of these policy objectives at the same time. They're not necessarily inconsistent to to do one and to do the other. Now, that obviously pushes the burden onto to firms to find a way to do that to collect that information about people who aren't their clients, but essentially collecting often the same degree of information about that other party, even though they're not a client of them and they don't have that contractual relationship with them. And then that is one of the the areas where both in terms of the detail of the regulation itself, but also, you know, operationally how firms actually put that in place, we've we've still got a lot of detail that needs to, to come out. We'll have to keep an eye on that for sure. Now, the other piece of this, this idea of saying, hey, this is my wallet. So I'm moving from the exchange's custodial wallet to my own wallet. How do they expect exchanges to validate that wallet ownership? Do we have details on this? I mean, this could be a very technical topic, obviously, but what is the practical expectation there uh, if you have any idea on that? So look, we don't we don't have any technical uh, requirements set out in terms of how people are actually meant to achieve that that objective, and it may be an area where, from the industry perspective, the need for new tools, uh, new products may need to come into place in order to actually meet that obligation. 
Interesting. Sounds like a, a development opportunity for an enterprising startup out there to figure out how we're going to do this. I mean, I can imagine something as simple as a user has to go to a page and sign a message from their personal wallet, in effect, demonstrating they've got private keys, control of those, at least at that moment in time, and combining that with, say, a login to their account at the at the exchange sort of demonstrates some, some level of ownership. But I can imagine then immediately after doing that validation, I could transfer the private key to the individual that I actually wanted to receive the funds that's not me. And I sort of circumvent what I think is the policy intent here. And I can imagine there's lots of scenarios, you know, more complex than the one I just described, which also circumvent the policy attempt. So any sense of, of really what EU is hoping to achieve in, in this case? Yeah, look, Ian, I think this has been part of the process throughout the whole development of this legislation, which there has been an important sort of education and learning component to understanding how the technology actually works and how people are using it in, in, in practice. And you make a very good point that, you know, there are certainly ways to circumvent the um, policy objective of knowing who controls a particular personal wallet. Um, we know, for example, this uh, requirement only requires that you know control to be verified once as you say immediately after that verification happens the control of those private keys could, could be handed to another individual equally uh, it would be possible to transfer funds into you know into a, your own personal wallet and then move them quickly to to another personal wallet controlled by yourself or by, or by a third party so in terms of the policy objective I think what is going to be interesting over time is actually really monitoring the effectiveness of this regime and also the necessity, coming back to the starting point, which is an assumption that there is a high level of risk involved with these wallets and whether that's actually borne out by the data or not. Yeah, we'll, we'll certainly have to keep an eye on this as it develops. I mean, all, all of the data that we see at Chainalysis seems to indicate there's not significantly greater risk in personal wallets than there is in any other type of transaction, right? They're not a meaningful component of where we're seeing illicit activity, at least to this point, so... Well, let, let's uh, let's shift to the second part of uh, the regulations, the MICA licensing regime. What what got decided here? So this is this is a really exciting piece of legislation, I think, for regulators, but also for firms operating in the EU. The one of the most important things about MICA is it allows for passporting, and what that means, simply put, is that if you get a license in one EU member state, so let's say you get a license in France, for example, you can then provide services across all of the EU. Currently, you have to go to each of the member states where you actually want to carry out business and go to each country and ask them for a license. Once MICA comes into effect, that's no longer going to be the case. Just one license to serve the whole EU market. And that's a complete game changer in terms of compliance from the private sector's perspective. And the requirements to get licensed in each member state, I guess they get made consistent across the the whole of the EU as part of this? That's right. So MICRA actually sets out the requirements for licensing across all of the EU member states. So it sets out, I guess, a couple of, of key things. One, it sets out these licensing requirements. It also sets rules in terms of what it expects from token issuers, for example, what it expects from crypto asset service providers like Exchange, both at the point that they're actually 
given a license, but also the ongoing obligations, for example, liability requirements with respect uh, to hacks, for example, with respect to, to their own operations. But then it also provides some really specific requirements to particular parts of the crypto industry. So things like stable coins, for example, or environmental disclosures. So in addition to the general requirements, there's some, then some quite specific things targeted. What's also interesting about micro is about what's not covered. There was a lot of debate over the last 18 months in particular around two areas. One was DeFi and the other was NFTs. Because of course, when this legislation started to be developed, neither were particularly large focuses of, of, of this space. But this is a very fast moving space as we know. So a lot has changed and those are now much more significant parts of the industry than they were even, even 18 months ago. What's been clear on DeFi is that DeFi is out of scope of this legislation for now. However, that doesn't mean people shouldn't pay attention because what was also made clear is that the European Commission has been given a mandate to start to develop, you know, a regulatory framework for DeFi, starting with, you know, this initial question of what exactly is DeFi? Who is sufficiently decentralized to fall into a space where perhaps a different rule set should apply? And the second is in relation to NFTs. And again, perhaps a sigh of relief for most NFT developers, for example, that in many cases, particularly if um, you're a platform that is providing NFTs for sale, which are only available on your platform, and they're perhaps more like collectibles, and you won't necessarily be subject to these rules. But if you're a, a platform which is offering, you know, the trade and exchange of a much larger group of NFTs, then you might need to be looking much more closely as to whether Michael will apply to you. Interesting. So DeFi for now is excluded, but there is going to be a judgment at some point of the scope of decentralization in DeFi. I think this has been something that we've done some analysis on it at Chainalysis. As part of the Web3 report, we looked at some of the larger or more well-known decentralized autonomous organizations, often the corporate structure behind DeFi protocols, and found that there was actually very little decentralization amongst the governance of the protocol, right? It was sort of very closely held. So I would imagine that would probably trigger then potentially MICA to apply to certain protocols that don't have wide decentralization. Is that basically the gist of where we think this might go? Yeah, regulators have definitely woken up to the fact that sometimes, you know, the word DeFi is used more as a marketing tool than, than a reflection of what's actually underneath the, the hood. And even in cases where, you know, a platform might consider themselves to be decentralized, a lot more detail needs to be picked out in terms of well, what does that actually mean from a regulator's perspective? And is it sufficient to mean that you shouldn't be subject to the same sorts of obligations? That's going to be a very interesting development for a lot of people in uh, in the crypto ecosystem, for sure. So we'll we'll revisit that as the the standard starts to develop. On the NFT front, where do NFT marketplaces fall? Are they subject to MICA or not, or is it unclear at this point? I think it's fair to say it's, it's unclear at, at this point. Certainly, it seems that some NFT marketplaces will be subject to, to MICA. And they're going to be looking at the sort of degree of fungibility of the different tokens. So whether a token is fractionalized or can be fractionalized, whether it's part of a collection, for example. And those two things would tend to indicate that there is a higher degree of fungibility and therefore would be subject to, to MICA. But those, those sort of red lines when it comes to NFTs are still yet to be defined.
Okay, so that'll be part of the work done over the next few months to to clarify on that front. Can I ask a silly question, by the way? So I think the FATF refers to VASPs, virtual asset service providers. Why does MICA shift to using the terminology crypto asset service provider? Is this just to confuse everybody and trip us up past <laughs> yeah. VASP? Absolutely. Look, I've even uh, over in Australia, we've, we've got CASP so with, with two S's because that's for crypto asset secondary service providers. So it, it seems that everyone wants their own terminology. At the end of the day, look, there are some slight nuances in the differences. And again, each nuance is a new compliance headache from, from the private sector perspective. Do I fall into this rule, but not that rule? simply because of a slight change in, in terminology and a slight difference in, in, in definition. Um, and look, this, this wording around, is it a virtual asset? Is it a crypto asset? We're really going to need to wait to see that the final definitions to understand how far it, it takes us away from what the FATF requires when it talks about, or what the FATF means when it talks about virtual assets. Interesting. So there could be something meaningfully different in this VASP versus CASP. Perhaps not intentionally. Perhaps not intentionally. <laughs> sometimes things slip between the cracks. It'll be interesting to see the detail when it comes out. Fair enough. All right. So stable coins have been a huge topic recently, obviously with the, the Terra Luna uh, and UST situation. I think a lot of people have been talking about this. We recently had another Caroline, Caroline Hill from Circle on the podcast. Uh, and we talked quite a bit about their approach uh, to stable coins. And I think they uh, are in the process of introducing a Euro denominated stable coin here in the near future. What does Micah say for stable coin issuers? What, what's coming down the pipe for them? So in this regard, Micra is really a product of its time, and, and that time was when uh, the Libra initiative from, led by Facebook, which later became DM, was really in its infancy, and, and this was a strong reaction to, to that proposal, which is why we see so much of the Micra draft legislation that's been released actually talk about what they call asset reference tokens. So these are not single fiat currency-backed tokens, which they call e-money, so things like USDT, for example. These are, or USDC, these are where you have a basket of currencies or, or a reference to something other than a single fiat currency. And that would be the type of model that we were looking at in DM. Now we know in, in practice that particular project, but also that model more generally actually hasn't come to, to fruition. But it's probably also going to capture things like algorithmic stable coins. So in some ways is, is a product of a time, but it's, it's probably also going to capture some of the other instances that you mentioned there, like, like Terra Luna. Interesting. And, you know, I think there was a reference, I saw a tweet that described this idea of a ceiling of 200 million euros in transaction volume per day. That seems unusually low based on what we're seeing in terms of transacted volume across the top three or four popular stable coins. They're all well beyond that limit. What is this likely to mean practically? Look, I think the focus here is particularly for those limits is for foreign currency backed stable coins. So perhaps backed by the US dollar, for example, or some other foreign non-European currency, or 
could be some of those algorithmic backed stable coins, for example. And the idea, you know, the policy objective here is around sovereignty and, and monetary policy to make sure that control over that monetary policy still actually remains without it actually being able to see a sort of a, whether it be a dollarization or, or some other, um, you know, cryptoization of the, the digital economy through the use of these types of tokens. The regulation here is on the stablecoin issuer, like the exchanges who are participants in a lot of these transactions, would they be expected to somehow like collaborate to measure that daily limit and stop transfers? It's a good question, Ian. And this look, the, the obligation at this stage appears to be predominantly on issuers, but there are definitely a number of practical challenges to implementation, as well as some of the detail that needs to come out. You know, does this talking about just the volume of transactions in the EU? Is it talking about globally? Um, you know, really understanding, you know, how you actually calculate that. And also simply, well, once you breach it, how do you practically actually stop issuance or stop usage of, of, of the stablecoin in that regard? So look, that's one of those things where the devil will be in the in the detail. And there's likely to also be a teething period that, you know, as this legislation actually comes into to force and some of these you know, challenges to implementation will need to be worked out um, and, and worked through with some of the regulatory agencies who've given, been given oversight for these new rules. Yeah, th this is one that I can't quite get my head wrapped around. So hopefully there's there's more clarity to come uh, on that particular topic, because it it seems likely that of you know the future promise of crypto related to things like cross-border remittances and payments, these dollar and euro denominated stable coins are likely to emerge as the payment rail equivalent in the crypto ecosystem, right? The lack of volatility, the alignment to popular fiat currency. And so that kind of arbitrary cap of 200 million euro in transaction volume a day, it's hard for me to reconcile those two. So you'll have to explain it to me as we get more clarity. Market manipulation? was also some of the draft text started to touch on this idea of market manipulation not being allowed in crypto. But I think a lot of people maybe view this as being one of the most popular activities in crypto. Look, certainly we've seen quite a lot of instances of, of market manipulation, and that can take different forms. And, and Micah talks a little bit about these, whether it be insider trading, wash trading, front running, uh, just some of the different types of market abuse that they're looking to crack down on here. So these are these are obviously concepts that we're very familiar with in, in traditional financial uh, services, but are relatively new. In fact, um, I can really only think of uh, one other jurisdiction that already has rules relating to, well, fresh rules related to market manipulation. Other jurisdictions claim that their existing rules also apply into, into crypto, but these are some of the first crypto-specific market manipulation, market abuse rules that we've seen. Yeah, it seems like there's a bigger focus on this particular topic in the U.S. as well. We just saw prosecution initiated against a former employee of OpenSea for insider trading where he was pre-purchasing ahead of an OpenSea listing of particular NFTs. But I think the response to that was widely one of why this particular case, because uh, the, the dollar value is relatively low compared to you know, some of the other much larger schemes of either insider trading or particularly wash trading that we've observed in the ecosystem. And I think in Ethereum specifically, you know, there, there's actually quite large organized activity facilitated by bots where people are monitoring the mempool and sort of front running or sandwich trading 
other people's arbitrage transactions. It almost seems like it's intrinsic to the ecosystem in some way. Do you think MICA has a chance to reset that standard of behavior in, in a meaningful way? Look, it, it's certainly going to be not without its its challenges. And, and again, similar things have been attempted in the traditional financial space. But it's certainly an area where it's not a sort of set and forget. It's going to require continued vigilance from the industry to crack down on this sort of behaviour with a view to creating a trustworthy environment to, to trade where people know that the price that they're getting is indeed reflected a true market price and, and not one that's been inflated or a level of liquidity that's been inflated, but also from, from regulators. They're definitely going to have their work cut out for them in terms of supervision in, the, in, in that regard. That's a great point, right? Like all of this is the intent, I think, ultimately is to protect market participants, right? And, and establish, you know, a fair marketplace uh, for exchange of these digital assets. Last topic, since we're talking and I think we're we're reaching record high temperatures in London where you're, where you're, uh, you're joined is the environmental aspect for this. I think it was long rumored that there would be an outright ban on proof of work blockchains due to their electricity consumption. Uh, did that show up in, in the draft regulations that we've seen so far? No, it didn't. Ian. And that's from a, I guess, not just from an industry perspective, but just from a sort of a sensible policymaking perspective. I think we should all be very glad that that didn't find its way in, you know, for a number of different reasons. Where we did get, though, is some disclosure requirements. So uh, for those of you familiar with the EU and its requirements in the traditional financial space, you'll know that it already has this taxonomy for sustainable finance where it sets a number of disclosure requirements for different sorts of financial assets. What we're seeing happening for crypto now is a very similar sort of regime that's going to be developed and put disclosure requirements not just on issuers but also on exchanges in terms of the tokens that they offer in terms of, you know, what is the environmental and climate impact of the different tokens. Now, calculating that is going to be incredibly complex and, and a space where a lot of guidance is going to be needed to ensure that there's consistent numbers or consistent ratings that we see across the industry in that regard. But it is a huge change and really the first legislation of its type in, in, in that regard. And it's going to have some very far-reaching effects, I think. Well, I'm glad to see the sophistication of the approach there, right? Rather than an outright ban of one particular element of the technology, let's look holistically at this and evaluate the total environmental impact and manage that downward as best we can, right? The industry has already made a fair bit of progress in, in that regard, I think really through two ways. One is the switch to renewable energies, and secondly is driving down the levels of energy required to run mining rigs, particularly for proof of work and census mechanisms. So more efficient processing chips, for example. So there's already a lot of progress uh, that has been made, and, and I think new technology developments we're going to see even more there. Well, Caroline, this has been incredibly informative. I feel much smarter. And now I have a long list of topics to go follow up on for future podcast episodes. So thank you so much for joining us today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Ian. Thanks for listening to this episode of Public Key. We're releasing new episodes weekly. So if you liked what you heard, then don't forget to subscribe, review, and of course, share with your friends. Now here's something to consider while you wait for our next one. If you're following crypto, you've probably heard about the soon to be completed Ethereum merge which will change the network from proof of work to proof of stake. It's a big project years in the making. Well, there's more coming. At the Ethereum community conference last week, Vitalik said, we're only 40% complete. After the merge comes the surge, 
the verge, the purge, and don't forget the splurge. Each one of these probably deserves its own public key episode. But for now, I'll leave it by saying each of these upgrades will make Ethereum faster and easier to use, which sounds good to me. Finally, don't forget to grab your copy of the Chainalysis State of Web 3 report or watch the on-demand webinar. Links to both are in the show notes.